John 13, 1 to 17, this is the word of Almighty God. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was, uh, he knew who, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Pray with me. Dear God, I would ask you to add your blessing to our reading and our study of your word. Make us people faithful to your name, rejoicing in the glories of Christ, cleansed, forgiven, sanctified, serving. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. The gospel according to John has a clearly expressed purpose. John tells us he wrote this book so that we might believe in Jesus for eternal life. And God inspired this text to help us believe, to help us be saved. For the believer, we believe and find encouragement. We we see the kindness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. We believe and we worship. We believe and we seek to follow the Savior. The first 12 chapters of this gospel cover about three years or a little more of Jesus' public ministry. God has shown us that Jesus is God, equal to, authorized by the Father. God has shown us the glory of Jesus set against the backdrop of Jewish holy days and feasts. God has given us reasons to believe that Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, is the fulfillment of the promises and plans of God. And as we enter into chapter 13, the pace slows dramatically. Chapters 13 to 17 cover only a few hours. 
We're going to focus in on the time that Jesus spends with his disciples on the night before his betrayal and arrest. As we do, we'll see Jesus comfort, teach, and encourage his followers. We'll see him show them the love of God, and we will see Jesus prepare them as best as they can be prepared for his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So let's get started this morning. I want to show you three key points about Jesus today as he shows himself to be the model servant. If you need these to be imperative, you should rejoice in all three of these. Point number one, Christ demonstrates true love. Christ demonstrates true love. Verse one says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's the night of the Passover feast. It's Thursday night before what will come to be known as Good Friday. Jesus and his disciples have prepared for their meal in an upper room. And if you read the other Gospels, you get some interesting tales of the disciples following a man with a water jar to show them the right place. John doesn't see that important in his telling of this event. John just skips to the event itself. And on this particular Passover in John chapter 13, Jesus said, Jesus knew that his hour had come. From chapters 1 to 12, we repeatedly saw that the hour of Jesus had not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It was not yet his hour Chapter 12, Jesus finally tells us the hour was at hand. And here again, John tells us Jesus' hour has come. And the hour that John refers to here is the time of the accomplishment of the mission of Jesus. The hour includes the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, of course, because it's all the completion of the work of Jesus. But the crucifixion is what is near to hand. It's almost time for Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. The beautiful thing for us to begin to see here, I think, is found at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus has loved his own. We know that. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has has shown us the love that he has for others, right? The first half of the gospel, think of the seven miracles that Jesus did. They show his love. They demonstrate his deity. Some of them were just simple kindness. When he turned water into wine at a wedding, that was just a nice thing for him to do. It was loving. It was gracious. Yes, it displayed his superiority to the old Jewish system, but it was just sweet. There were mighty healings. He even raised a man from the dead. Yeah, Jesus showed his love. Jesus loving his own particularly applies to the way that Jesus had loved the disciples. Jesus chose a particular group of 12 men to follow him. He taught them. He empowered them to serve. He revealed the truth of God to them. And not only did Jesus love these friends over the three years or so of his ministry, John says that Jesus loved them to the end. The Greek behind the word end there, it's a word that indicates fullness or final purpose or destination. He loved them to their destination. He loved them all the way. He loved them fully. He loved them to the very last moment of his life and ministry. And we get to see an example of the love of Jesus for his own in the passage we study today. 
But before we do, let's slow down one second. Jesus loves. Stop and think about that. He loves. Jesus loves his own. While this first applied to the disciples in this passage, it applies to everyone who knows Jesus. Ask yourself, have you come to Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you asked him to be your savior? If so, Jesus loves you. This is astounding. The perfect God, the very God against whom we've all rebelled, has chosen to set his love and goodness on us. We should never let ourselves get over being stunned by the fact that Jesus would ever love somebody like us. If you've not yet come to Jesus, hear me. Jesus invites you into his grace. And all who get under Jesus' grace find out that Jesus has, in fact, loved them. If you want the love of the God who made you, you can have it. How do you do? You, you run to Jesus. And the love of God's right there for you. And when you have the love of God, he will never ever take it away from you. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Ask Jesus, oh Jesus, please save my soul because of who you are and what you've done. Because you died and rose again for my sins and my justification. Believe, trust, and you can rejoice with us all about the love of Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, John highlights that Judas Iscariot is present at the meal. Judas, the one who will betray Jesus, the one who is about to be filled by Satan himself, Judas is at the table. The display of love that we're soon going to see with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, it includes Judas. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew exactly who Judas was. He knew what Judas was going to do. Verse 11 tells us that as well. Jesus himself told us he knew Judas was a devil in the midst of the disciples a year earlier in John 6, verses 70, 71. Jesus offered Judas true love. He offered genuine friendship to Judas, even though Judas would refuse it. Back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. You understand that Jesus did not command us to do a thing that Jesus would not himself willingly do? Then verse 3, all the way through verse 5, we start letting the story roll in here. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knows his position. You see that there? Having received all things from the Father, Jesus knows exactly who he is and where he stands. 
Jesus knows exactly who he is, having come from the Father. Jesus knows exactly where he's going, returning to his Father. In those statements, we're supposed to see that the drama that's about to unfold is an act of the greatest person on earth. This is an act of God the Son, the one with the authority over all, the one who has come down from God, the one who is returning to the throne of the universe. What happens? We see in the movements of Jesus a perfect and astonishing display of humility and self-abasement. Jesus takes off his outer garment, strips down to basically a loincloth, wraps a long towel around his waist, pours some water and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, why did that need to be done? Well, practically, in the first century, men walked around in sandaled feet on dusty stone or dirt roads. And no matter how clean somebody might be, he can't walk down the street without his feet getting dirty. Thus, when a man arrived at a home for a meal, his feet needed to be washed off. Why? In those days, when people gathered around a table, they weren't sitting in chairs with their feet under the table. Guests would recline at table. They laid on on their sides, on a mat, on a cushion. Typically, a dinner guest would support himself on his left arm, kind of lean on your left elbow. They would eat with his right hand, and his feet would extend out away from the table. But when several guests were around the table, your feet would not be significantly far from the head of the next dinner guest. Thus, I think we would all agree, clean feet would be important. I'm pro-clean feet today, and we sit with our feet under the table. Now, in the culture of Jesus' day, Washing the feet of guests at a meal was a menial task. It was reserved for the lowest ranking slave in the house. The one who washed the feet of others was in the most humble position of all. And the lowliness of being the foot washer might explain why none of the disciples' feet had yet been washed. The other Gospels tell us about the disciples. They squabbled about which of them was the most important. For one of the disciples to take the role of foot washer would be for that disciple to act like he was the lowest ranking in the group. So it's an utterly stunning move for Jesus to get up, play the role of the lowest slave, and begin to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus, the one who is God in the flesh, the one who came from God the Father, the one who is returning to God the Father, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus played the slave. And this act of playing the slave, John tells us, is a depiction of Jesus loving his disciples to the very end. I can't hear this account without my mind going to Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Jesus, the one who is in very nature God and who knows it, the one who will be highly exalted above every name ever named, humbled himself out of love for God and God's people. Jesus, God, took on genuine humanity. Jesus, the Holy One, bore the sins of many. Jesus, the sinless one, laid down his life as a sin offering to cover the sins of the people he would rescue. When you think about the love of Jesus, think of this sort of self-sacrifice. Jesus has the right to be seen as God, as Lord, as Master, as King. Jesus willingly, joyfully, eagerly laid aside those rights to stoop down. And play the role of the lowest of servants. Jesus took upon himself the role of the sacrificial substitute. Jesus gave up his rights and laid down his life to save our very souls. This is a Jesus worthy of worship. I said he loves and he showed his loves. When you hear the word love, what do you think of? Do you... Do you hear mere emotion when you hear love? Do you get all all fluffy and bubbly? Do you think of acts of affection? Think more highly. When you hear the word love, think of a commitment to another's good. Love is being committed to another's good so much so that you will do that person genuine good even when doing so is costly. Now, because of the world we live in, I need to pause and say this to you. When I say doing another person good, I mean biblical good. Sometimes doing somebody else good will not be the thing that they like. You can offend someone by doing them good. We already had one of our dear brothers mention to us that he's being done good with a new meal plan. (laughs) That may not be exactly what he likes, but it's good. Doing other people good is not doing everything they want you to do. Doing other people good is doing them biblical good. And love is a commitment to do another person genuine biblical good even when it costs you. Why would I define love this way? 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8 read, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
How do you define a word that encompasses all that? It is a genuine, self-sacrificial commitment to the good of another. Of course, it will include feelings, but it's much bigger than a feeling or a disposition. Love acts. Love gives. Love cares. Love serves. Love does another person genuine God-centered biblical good. Jesus loved his own. Jesus loved all who are his children. Jesus loved us to the uttermost. And this must lead us to rejoice and to love Jesus. It should fill us with gratitude. It should make us worship our Savior. Christ demonstrates true love. But let's move on. Point number two, Christ cleanses his own. Christ cleanses his own. Six to eight, I love this. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Jesus goes round the table, washing the feet of the followers, being the lowliest of slaves. Simon Peter is unable to contain himself. You guys, you guys know Peter, right? Quick to speak, perhaps a little bit brash, maybe a little overconfident in himself. I heard someone refer to Peter as, oh, flash the sword, then deny the Lord, Peter. <laughs> Peter will not have his master stoop to wash his feet. No, 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 no. When Peter asks him, do you wash my feet? He's asking so as to say, this is not something that should occur. Jesus says, Pete, you don't understand right now, but you're going to get it later. Once Jesus has laid down his life to save us from our sins by going to the cross, once Jesus has finished the work that he came to do, Peter's going to see that the foot washing is a small depiction of the cleansing work of Jesus and the humble work of Jesus. Peter's going to grasp that Jesus, in his death, took on the role of a servant, a slave, a sacrifice to cleanse the people of God from the filth of our sin. But Peter doesn't get it yet. Instead, Peter argues with Jesus. You guys remember a couple of years ago, Peter comes up behind Jesus and says, hey, look, you say you're going to the cross, but that's never going to happen, right? You're not dying. We're not letting that happen, right? And, Peter, and Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is a lot like that. Peter's words are adamant here. There's a double negative in the Greek. It's as if Peter said, never, no, not ever are you washing my feet. No way is this happening. You kind of get a picture of Peter on the floor, like pulling his feet up away from Jesus. (laughs) You can't touch me. And Jesus' response carries the teaching forward. The Savior says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Obviously, we're getting into a symbolic understanding. This is not about water anymore. It's about something bigger. Jesus has come to save the people of God. And that salvation includes Jesus cleansing them, making them holy before God so they can be in the presence of God. It includes both covering our sins and making us right with the Lord. 
Just, just imagine for a second. If the rule is you've got to be perfectly clean to be in the presence of God with no sin, and I just threw you in the presence of God on your own merit, what happens to you? It would be like throwing a tissue paper on the surface of the sun. Because you and I are not clean. We're not perfect on our own. We are infinitely less than perfect. We've got to be cleaned up infinitely so. God does that. Jesus causes that. When Ezekiel prophesied that the new covenant would come, he included cleansing language. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In washing the disciples' feet... Jesus is hinting at the fact that soon, very soon, he will perform the duty of the lowliest person ever to live. Jesus will suffer and die taking upon himself the guilt of others. Jesus will suffer in our place and Jesus, through this action, will cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. Jesus will give us, as a gift, his perfect righteousness while he suffers the justice of God for our wrongs. You say, Travis, is that in the Bible? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Peter wanted to refuse to let Jesus wash him, Jesus had the opportunity to point out a powerful truth. Jesus came to cleanse us, and without the cleansing work of Jesus, we can have no part of a relationship with him. Without the cleansing work of Jesus, we cannot know God. Without the cleansing work of Jesus, you cannot be forgiven. There's no other way than being washed by Jesus. Hear me clearly. You need to be cleansed by Jesus. If there's ever been a snippet of an ounce of imperfection on you, you need to be cleansed by Jesus. Now, real quick, I'll ask again. How many of you are naturally, absolutely, perpetually, never-endingly perfect on your own? No takers, right? And if you ever mess up just a little bit, then you know you need to be cleansed by Jesus. You need his perfect righteousness applied to your account. You need his sacrificial death to cover your sins. If you've never asked Jesus for that grace, believe in Jesus right now and ask him for that grace right now. And if you have, praise Jesus for cleansing grace. Then verses 9 and following say, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. 
and you're clean. Again, Peter jumps a little too far. That's Peter's way. Peter thinks that if a foot washing gets me in with Jesus, a washing of my head and my hands of all of me, that's going to really get me in good with Jesus. But that's not the point. And Jesus has a chance here to teach another point about salvation. Jesus says a person who has already been cleansed doesn't need to be fully re-cleansed. This makes sense, right? If you've had a bath and you walk down the street to have dinner at the person's house in the first century, you just need your feet to be washed off, right? You don't go take another bath every time you enter somebody's house. For you today, if you come to somebody's house for dinner, your hands might be dirty. You might need to wash your hands before dinner. You don't go take a shower. That'd be weird. The spiritual application here is beautiful, Christians. Jesus cleanses us once. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus once and once only. After that, we never need to come to Jesus to seek salvation again. When you repent of your sin, when you believe in Jesus, when you ask Jesus, Jesus, please save me, he does it. And the moment you believe, God permanently forgives you for all of your sin, for all of your life, the past and the future. Because those sins have been perfectly punished in Jesus in a moment in the past, you can know that he has forgiven you perfectly of all of your sins, even that dumb thing you might do in traffic tomorrow. And God applies to your account at the very same time, once and for all time, the record of the perfect life of Jesus. You never need that kind of cleansing again. But you might ask yourself, well, well the, then what do I do? What do I do when I sin? What do I do if I say something stupid? What do I do if I feel guilty in the future? It's like having your feet washed. You've already had your bath. Now you just need to go back to Jesus and confess your sin. Repent. Ask him for forgiveness. But this is not the forgiveness of salvation you're asking for. It's instead the forgiveness that ties to restoration and fellowship. Jesus, the way I behaved, I, I feel like I made myself dirty again. Lord, make me clean. I'm sorry for my wrong. Forgive me because of Jesus and restore my joy, restore my, my closeness, my feeling of fellowship with you. Please forgive me. See, when you, Christian, ask for forgiveness today, that's what you're asking for. Not save me again, but draw me near where I feel it again. Praise God that Jesus cleanses us, but, but also know this. Let me add something else to this. You're not cleansed if you're just playing games with God and you've never actually come to Jesus to have life and mercy. How do I know? Look at the end of verse 10 again. Jesus said to Peter, you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knew 
that among those whose feet he was washing was Judas Iscariot. And Judas was not clean. Judas had never really believed. Judas had never repented of his sin. Judas had never really embraced the person of Jesus. Judas had never said, I give up everything just to trust Jesus. Judas was hanging out among the disciples, but he was never a child of God. And the Lord wants us all to grasp that Jesus was completely aware. He was fully in control. He was never caught off guard. What a savior Jesus is. He loves his own. He sacrifices for his own. He cleanses his own. Oh, if you don't know Jesus, run to Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, praise him. And as we wrap up today's passage today, that was redundant. As we wrap up today's passage, right now, here in just a minute, this very day, stop it. Love Jesus. Know Jesus. What we're going to see here, it's not about how to be saved now. We want to learn how to love Jesus better. We want to learn how to live as a follower of Jesus once we've been saved. That, that's important too, right? I'm going to give you some rules to think about for a second. But the rules don't save you. The rules help you live once you've been saved. Let's never blend law and gospel, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Once we're saved, we follow. Point number three, Christ teaches us to love. Christ teaches us to love. Verses 12 to 15 here say, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gets dressed. He returns to the seat of honor at the table. He's the teacher after all. And he wants his disciples to understand a little of what he's done. At this point, he's not going to unpack all the symbolism of spiritual cleansing for them. They'll get that later. But right now, Jesus is going to unpack a life lesson for all those who are actually his followers. Jesus first points out, he is their teacher. He is their Lord. They call him these things and they are absolutely right. Jesus knows who he is. You know what, folks? You can serve a lot better when you actually know who you are. He knows he's from God. He knows he's returning to heaven. He knows he has authority over all things. So he's not denying those facts. He didn't set those aside. He's not pretending those aren't real. But if Jesus, the Lord over all, can lower himself to serve his disciples, even in a menial way, these men should also realize they can serve one another. These men should be willing to humble themselves to do other people good. The point here, by the way, is not that Jesus is instituting a new ceremony. We don't have some buckets for foot washing water that we're about to break out here for the church service. He's not trying to say, I want you to formally wash feet as an act of worship. There are some churches that do that. The Savior's being clear here. What he's done is an example. 
It's not for an outward ceremonial purpose, but it's an attitude lifestyle change among the disciples. Jesus does not say, do exactly the thing I've done. He says to do as I've done. Followers of Jesus should be eager to humble themselves and care for the needs of other followers of Jesus. 16 and 17, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Consider what often keeps you, what often keeps others from playing the role of the humble servant. What keeps you from serving? Oftentimes, we don't want to perform menial tasks because we think they're beneath us. Oftentimes, oftentimes, people feel like the little things should be done by little people. But Jesus turns that on its head. For Jesus to serve requires Jesus to take an infinite step down from the throne of the universe. For you and me to serve, it's a much smaller step. If Jesus can take the big step, we can take the small one. Jesus played the role of servant. You and I, if we follow Jesus, should do the very same thing. Like Jesus We should know who we are, right? Jesus could take the step down because he knew exactly who he was, who he is. Jesus knew that serving would not make him not God. Like Jesus, we should know who we are. We are the forgiven children of God with the promise of heaven with Jesus as our reward. And knowing who we are, knowing where we're going, we, like Jesus, should be eager to give our very all to care for others, to love like Jesus. Jesus. We're not greater than Jesus. You don't think you're greater than Jesus, do you? If he can serve, so can we. And Jesus tells us that if we'll see this, if we'll follow in his footsteps, we who know him are blessed. Perhaps, Christian, today would be a very good day for you to examine your life and ask yourself, how could I start serving other people like Jesus? Whose feet can you symbolically wash? Think about it in the church. Where can you serve? Is it time for you to start jumping in and helping more than you do? If you're not a church member, by the way, and you love Jesus and are plugging in here, you need to become a church member. That's actually part of it because it's a way that you declare, I'm here to serve and I ask the church to watch out for me. That's part of it. If you're a church member, find a place to help. We need church members who will watch children in the nursery. We will background check you before you do that, just so you know. If you're new here, we're not leaving you alone with the kids just yet. We like you, but, you know, it's a weird world we live in. We need people who have gifts to help us with musical worship. We need singers. We need instrumentalists. Anybody got a cello? Just asking for a friend. 
We need folks with, with skills, life skills, to help people who don't have the same life skills or abilities to help people with things that need to be fixed around their houses. You ever think about just talking to somebody who you know has needs or who you know doesn't have all of your abilities and say, hey, is there anything I could do at your house to help you? We need folks with organizational skills to help us with tech things, business things, organizational things. Where are you skilled? Where can you serve? Whom can you encourage? Think also about who might have a need. Who's lonely around you? Who could use a friend? Who could use a phone call? For whom could you be praying? Who's a mom in the church who would appreciate a visit, a babysitter, or a meal? Do you know? And if you don't know, can I say this without being too judgy-judgy? If you don't know, that means you're not plugged in enough. Would you guys agree with that? If you don't know, that probably means there's something you're missing. Even without becoming a church member, by the way, you can still help with the physical needs of the church. You can get to know people well by just helping to bring things from storage to this room. I've known ladies who have gotten to know other ladies in the church just because they help fold these curtains up. That's good. You can help set up the room. We can always use people here starting around 8.30 in the morning to put chairs around the room carry things from one spot to another. After services, you can help put things away. There's ways to help. Find them. If you don't know, talk to me. I'll try to help. Jesus has set us a great example, Christians. He's a great Savior. Jesus demonstrates true love. Jesus cleanses everyone who belongs to Him. Jesus teaches us to love other people. May we love Jesus. May we be cleansed by Jesus. May we worship Jesus. May we serve Jesus. May we serve others as Jesus served his own. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I bow before you now, seeking your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what love looks like. Humble, self-sacrificial, committed to others' good. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to cleanse us. I pray, Lord Jesus, for everyone in this room who does not know you, that they would, in fact, come to know you and find cleansing, saving grace. And Lord Jesus, I pray for all who do know you, that we would let go of pride and seek to serve one another. I pray that you'll make this church the sweetest, most gracious, most loving, serving, reformed, faithful Bible church that you've ever seen. Do in our lives what only you can do. Be magnified. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.